If you're in the room, if you're online, we're thrilled you're here with us today. We're continuing our series, Naked Spirituality. And this week, we're sort of making a transition. The first three weeks of the series, we were in this season of simplicity, which is a season of awakening. It's sort of where we all begin. It's when everything is new and fresh and exciting. And we explored things like being here. We, we looked at words like thanks. We talked about worship last week. And this week, we're doing what naturally happens as you continue to grow and progress as you learn as you know, the, the rings of the tree get added to, you begin to move into different seasons of life. And so today we're moving into the season of complexity. And the season of complexity, um, if you've been following along, is the season of summer, right? And so I wanna talk a little bit about what that season is before we talk about our word today. Our word today is sorry, and so we're gonna get to that. Um, but let's talk a little bit about complexity first. So if simplicity is the season of awakening, complexity is the season of strengthening. Uh, if uh, simplicity is about really trying to hone in on right versus wrong, which, which is sort of this black and white thinking, then complexity is when we begin to realize that maybe everything isn't, maybe there are all of these shades of gray. Maybe it's about effective versus ineffective, for example. If simplicity is about learning orthodoxy, which is the thing, how many of you went through a phase in your own development where the only thing you really wanted to know was you know, what the truth was or what the answer was to the, like you approached your faith, your religion, as if it was just trying to find answers to questions. Anybody have that? Like the definitive answer. And there are lots of people out there peddling and propagating a religion that sort of says there are definitive answers to all of the questions. And if you listen to us, we can give you those answers. If you've been around Grace Point at all, you know, we don't really talk about answers. We talk about uh, responses. We talk about perspectives but we also understand that all of the things we would call answers are filtered through our own lenses and our own worldview and our own experiences. And that there is no place from which we can look at with an objective lens that takes all of the humanness out of it and say, this is what is definitively true. So when, for me, when people start trying to say, do you know that you know that you know? Or when people start trying to say, here's the objective answer or truth, that's, a, that's when all the little um, alarm bells on my dashboard start going off. Because I, I feel like I'm in the, the path to manipulation. Um, and, and so complexity is about realizing that maybe it's not about orthodoxy because maybe orthodoxy is kind of a myth. Or, or maybe orthodoxy, instead of being a settled collection of answers, maybe orthodoxy is an evolving, unfolding understanding. So that what is orthodox today actually shouldn't look like what was orthodox 2,000 years ago because we've learned something, some, we hope, we've learned something in the last 2,000 years. And 2,000 years into the future, if we haven't destroyed the planet by then, orthodoxy should still be an ever-unfolding experience. It's one of those things where some people are, you know, like, would your grandparents, would your grandfather recognize your faith? Probably not all of it. And, and that's okay, my, my, my grandfather also wouldn't recognize an iPhone, um, right? And that's okay too. Technology evolves and gets better. And hopefully our understandings and our, our doctrines and our categories are ever evolving. And so maybe complexity is not about focusing so much on having the right answers. Maybe complexity is focused on orthopraxy. Does anybody know what that, is that a new word? Uh, orthopraxy, if orthodoxy is having the right belief or opinion, orthopraxy is more focused on right actions. Right, so we may not be able to settle on an orthodoxy um, about a specific issue, but I bet we can decide that feeding hungry people is the right thing to do. 
that pursuing peace and justice and equity is the right thing to do. That loving our neighbor, as complex and as confusing as that can be, and loving our enemy, as difficult and frustrating as that can be, are probably the right ways to live in the world. And so as we begin this season of complexity, as we're starting to move into all the shades of gray, we begin with the word sorry. And I think Sir Elton John may have been right when he sings, sorry seems to be the hardest word. Anybody want to confess that you just have trouble in person, online, let us know. How many of you have trouble apologizing? Right? How many of you also probably have some issues with lying because you didn't raise your hand there? And the reality is, I bet most of us in some way have a struggle. How many of you, when you're confronted with something that you've done wrong or that has hurt someone or that has missed the mark or whatever language you want to use, how many of you, you're in I'll say me. Here's my initial reaction often. It's defensiveness. Anybody else there? It's wanting to somehow control the narrative and change the narrative so that it actually isn't about my failure, that it isn't something I've done, that it isn't pain I've caused, that I just want to shift the storytelling a little bit. I think sorry is a really hard word for lots of us because sorry opens us up to all sorts of things that we have been taught and ingrained both through culture and through our religion to keep kind of hidden and controlled. Because when you say you're sorry and you actually mean it, right? I mean, how many of you have ever given a a sorry that you really didn't mean you were just trying to get the situation over? Come on, come on. Or you've given this kind of sorry. Well, I'm sorry that that offended you, (laughs) which is 0% sorry you'd said it or did it, and maybe 2% sorry it, it offended them. Right, Um, but this idea of truly being able to tap into the part of yourself where you can actually give a genuine I'm sorry to someone, it seems a little scary, and I think it's because sorry is ultimately about vulnerability. Sorry is about being able to assess a situation and realize that I have some sort of complicity uh, in, uh, in the harm of another person. That something I said, something I did, something I didn't say, something I didn't do, somehow affected them in a negative way. And to be able to enter into that and acknowledge that I had a part in this, it requires vulnerability. And we, I think, have been conditioned to see vulnerability as weakness, right? It's why when sometimes you see somebody crying um, that people think, oh, they're crying, that must mean they're weak. And and it works a couple ways, right? For, For people who identify as female, if you cry, it is seen as a weakness, right? So if you cry in front of somebody, not only are you processing your pain, but you're also going, now they see me as weak. If you identify as male, then what happens when you cry is, well, they're not really tough. They're not really strong. They, they really can't hold it together. And we've been, like any amount of anything that's vulnerable is seen to be, well, that person is just they're revealing the weak points between their armor, that if we, you know, that's where they're dangerous, that's where they're vulnerable. And I think that goes back to the way we've been taught to read the Bible. Um, and I think it goes back to the way the Bible begins, actually. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with creation, and then in Genesis 3, which is where lots of evangelical folks actually begin reading the Bible. They skip the first two chapters um, because they're too human-affirming. you got to get to the human-hating And um, in Genesis chapter 3, this is the story of the first humans 
and they have a choice to make. They're either going to eat the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And spoiler alert, it's been around for a few thousand years, so it's not really my fault. Um, but spoiler alert, they choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the moment they, they take from that tree and eat it, what, does anybody know what happens? Their eyes are open and they realize they're what? Naked. Now, before this, we actually get this beautiful line that these first humans were naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. No amount of um, fear that you will actually be seen by someone. It's a thing I see in my kids, right? They are more than happy to just run around naked everywhere. No shame. We were, I was literally with a friend watching Monday Night Football in my living room last week. I think it was. And, and uh, my youngest just comes down the stairs naked. As if this is a normal thing you do when you have guests in the house. All right, this is not a nudist colony. It's our house. We have company. Put on some clothes. All right? But there was no amount of shame in that. It was just sort of, he was out of the bath and loving life. You know what I mean? Like it was just this existence. And the moment they eat this tree, and, and I'm increasingly lean toward an understanding this tree of the knowledge of good and evil to be a, about judgment. Because judgment is about deciding what is good and what is bad, but even more so, judgment is about deciding who is good and who is bad. And so when these first people eat the fruit, and again, metaphorical narrative here, don't literalize it. But when these humans eat the fruit and their eyes are open and they realize they're naked and suddenly they're evaluating one another. And that fear of I'm being evaluated and so I immediately want to start covering up. What the Bible seems to assert is that for human beings, vulnerability is, feels dangerous. It feels a little fearful. Because if somebody sees the real you, somebody sees the you that you actually are, somebody sees you and all of the facades are gone when you sort of let your hair down and you're just existing, that there's something about that version of you that would terrify them or that, that they would judge and deem unworthy. It, it is the experience, and I, I, I use this illustration all the time, and I'm sorry, but it just so, it is so true. When you walk into the school cafeteria the first day of middle school or high school or whatever, and you walk in, and I'll, I'll never forget looking around the room and realizing I, there's not a group that I fit with. So wh what do I do? Definitely don't drop your tray because they all clap, found that out fairly quickly. But this, this, is there a place I fit, wondering where I belong, and who do I have to be, and what identity do I have to take on in order to fit with all these other people and meet their expectations? There's this, there's this vulnerability that if we actually showed up and we were honest, would people judge us, hold us at a distance, shame us, or would they embrace us? And I think what we find with the word sorry is that, that getting to a place of sorry uh, actually causes us to be vulnerable. And, and it causes us to reflect on who we are. It causes us to reflect on how we've shown up in the world. And then to admit sorry, it actually can make us look a little, little weak. Like, look, they're apologizing. A tough person would just stand their ground, but they're acknowledging and apologizing and so I want to just begin by saying, I know that what we're going to talk about today, when you hear the word sorry or a word we're going to look at in a little bit, the word repent, right, just makes you have that sort of experience um, because it can be so tied up in the anti-human. It can be so tied up in guilt and shame, right? So let's just begin by reminding all of us 
that every single one of you in this room and every single one of you watching online, you are a human being. And that doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't mean you're you know, in desperate need of somebody to save you from an angry God. It means that you are beautifully, wonderfully human. And to be human is to be a mixture of soil and divine breath. That within every human being, there is both what we would call the human tied to earth, and we would call the divine tied to something beyond, transcendent, something beyond earth. You do not enter this world separated from God in need of help getting back to God. You enter this world inherently united with God. As a fish is in water, as we exist in air, you don't have to earn it, you don't have to deserve it, you don't have to prove you're worthy enough, you don't have to memorize enough Bible verses, you don't have to go to church enough, you don't have to do all the right things, the right rituals, you just, that's, you, that, is, that is how you come from the factory, right? That is base model for everybody. It's like the new AT&T thing, where like everybody gets our best phone deal. What? Are you kidding me? Everybody? Everybody enters this world inherently united with God. By the way, that is actual good news. When people start with, you're terrible and God really wants to harm you, but good news, God harmed somebody else for you. You still got a God harming people. Not good news. Good news is the very moment you entered this world, the divine took you in her arms and held you and said, this is my child whom I love with them. I am pleased they bring me great joy because that's what you do when new life enters the world. So if we take guilt and shame off the table, if we take this idea that you're just terrible because you've made a mistake off the table, what might the word sorry unlock for us? What, what might it invite us into? And I want to begin with this. I, I think sorry is grounded in self-examination. It's grounded in the ability to, to, to step back and look at your life and know yourself. There's this, this verse in the Psalms that says, search me and know me, right? This is this prayer to God, search me and know me. Uh, I think we also should be inviting ourselves into that process. Not God, search me and know me, but hey, me, search me and know me. Anybody ever do anything? You have, how many of you have ever had a response to a situation? Like you said something and you're like, where did that come from? Anybody? You ever said something and you're like, oh, that was horrible. I don't mean it. It just, where did it come from? Or you, you ever responded to a situation in a certain specific way and you're like, why? Well, I, I did not know I had that in me. Where did that come from? I, I think we are, we are taught to live separated. We're not separated from God, but I do think we're taught to live separate from ourselves. All right, this idea that, that our, we are so bad that somehow we need distance from us when, when I think that actually good spirituality is about bringing us home to ourselves. There was a thing going around this week where a pastor was talking about this verse from the book of Jeremiah that said, the human heart is deceptive above all things. That's nice. <laughs> right, so the message was you can't trust your heart. And what I've discovered, especially in religious settings, this whole deal of you can't trust your heart, but you can trust us. So just do and believe what we tell you to believe is the pretext for so much harm and so much abuse, and it is really, really dangerous. 
because they take a verse from a chapter of Jeremiah, which is about the people of Judah not living faithfully with God and there's judgment and danger coming. They take a verse essentially out of somebody's worst day and they try to make it universally applicable to every single human who's ever lived. And that's really bad hermeneutics, I think. And hermeneutics just mean this, like how you interpret the Bible. It's a really bad interpretation of the Bible. I think part of what a job of a church or a faith community, spiritual community, is to help people come back home to themselves, to feel at home in their bodies, to feel at home with who they are, and to and learn to trust the truest voice inside of them, the, the true self, them, the actual them, the them that they have been taught again and again to not listen to, the them that they've been told is dangerous, the them that they've been told, well, yeah, but that, that version of you loves everybody too much, and we've got to be really clear on who's in and who's out. What if the point of spirituality was... I don't know what all we're going to do, but I do know we're going to try to help one another come home to ourselves. Because you, you never have to come home to God. Right? The point of the story of the prodigal son is not, well, finally the son came home and the father accepted the son as a son again. It was, no, finally the son came home to himself. That great line in that story is when he came to his senses. When he realized he'd been on this journey away from himself and that it was possible to be brought back home to himself. It changed everything. One of the things that happens during complexity is when we start looking at good and bad, we, we begin to realize this. It's not just they're bad and we're good. It's, it's actually there may be some, some good in them, and there may be some stuff that's not so good in us. And that's what self-examination is for. It's to begin to to wrestle with, who am I? What are my motives? What's causing me to act the way I'm acting in the world? What am, am I acting out of something? Is it fear? Is it loneliness? Is it, what, is it anxiety? Whatever it is that I'm acting out of in the world. I was at lunch with a friend a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about seeing his children grow up, and now one of his kids has uh, a, a kid. And he was watching his son play with and just exist and parent this grandchild. And he said, he, he said to me, I'm so glad I did not pass on the sense of inadequacy I got from my father. Because I look at my son and he doesn't have that. So of all the things I did wrong, like the thing, one of the things I did right was I did not take this thing that had been handed to me, gift wrap it and re-gift it to somebody else. We left that gift off the table. And I thought, gosh, that, it takes somebody to really be in the process of knowing themselves, knowing their self, to be able to say, I, I look at the thing, and, because they don't tell you that, right? Like when your parents hand you something terrible, they're not like, hey, here's this, here's this sense of self-doubt I've carried my whole life. I want you to have some too. <laughs> like it's not, it's not, there's not a ceremony for the things they're passing on to us. So to have that self examination, to have that awareness of self to go, this is a thing I've been given and I want to make sure that it's not the thing I'm, I, I want to pass on to my kids a sense of self-confidence. I want to pass on to them a sense of adequacy. I want to pass on to them the sense that they're enough. Not once they do all the things, they're already enough. You enter the world enough. Richard Rohr has this great line where he says, this is a paraphrase, but it, pain that is not transformed is transmitted. Uh, the thing that you've been given, because I, I don't think most of us go looking for pain, but that pain that you've been given, if we don't find a way to transform it into something else, something life-giving, something healing, then we'll tend to just pass that on 
to the people around us. And so self-examination, then it can look lots of ways for lots of different people. Maybe self-examination is finding a really good therapist and going and engaging in the work of trying to sort out who you are and why are you responding the way you are and all of those sorts of things. Maybe it's regular times of reflection. Maybe it's sitting down with a journal and writing, just letting it flow and seeing what's happening. And maybe it's paying attention to the part of you that goes, oh, that's interesting. Why'd you do that? Why'd you say that? Why'd you respond that way? And in those moments, when I've learned enough about me to know that if, if I feel in a moment, if I feel like embarrassed or inferior, there's this version of me that can exist that is immediately like angry. I wonder why that is. I wonder why that is. This is just me doing therapy now, actually. Because um, you're not charging me. So this is great. That there's this invitation to self-examination. And when you take guilt and shame off the table, finding something in you that you're like, that's not exactly how I want it to be. It's not now, well, I have to go crawling through the desert begging for forgiveness. It's, oh, I can work on that. Oh, I'm a human being. And to be human is to be a mixture of the dirt and the divine. And sometimes when, you're, when you've got a little bit of dirt as a part of you, um, there are things to work on, Right? doesn't make, mean we're bad. It doesn't mean we're awful. It doesn't mean that we're not deserving of love. It doesn't mean that we're unworthy. It means that we are in process. How many of you in this room are under a thousand years old? Cool. Most. So here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The universe is like, what, four, is it 14 billion years old or something like that? Can we just go with that number? Not a scientist. It's billions of years old. If we're lucky, I mean, when, when somebody lives to be 100, we think they are super fortunate. So you take billions of years and you take a species that is relatively new evolutionarily, evolutionarily and we have this sense like we should just have it all right all the time. When in, in reality, we're in process. We're in process. We don't, when our kids are learning things in school, we're not upset that they're not splitting the atom, right? They have a letter ring. Let them learn the letters first. And when we can enter the world with that kind of permission, to, like, like don't go out there and hurt people on purpose. But here's the, here's the good news. You're, you're in process. You're ever evolving. You're learning and you're growing. And instead of having to hide from the things in us that we're not proud of, this is an invitation to move into them and actually deal with them. Because so much of Christianity has been, don't worry about anything, just cover it in blood and it'll be fine. When that actually stops the process of growth. I have been a Christian at one point in my life that was like, you know, Christians aren't any better than anybody else. They're just forgiven. And it's true that Christians aren't any better than anybody else. But that essentially becomes an excuse for Christians behaving badly in public. Right? Like, well, Jesus has forgiven us, so if I harm my neighbor, then I just need to ask Jesus for forgiveness. Actually, you probably need to talk to your neighbor first because they're the one who's been harmed. And so this, look, you're in process. I'm in process. You will leave this life. I will leave this life unfinished. If we actually got the bonus and we got to live for a thousand years, we would leave this life very, very tired and still unfinished. No guilt, 
no shame, just self-examination that brings things to the surface that then we can begin working on, processing, and healing a bit at a time. And part of that self-examination process leads to being able to admit mistakes. Can we all just take a deep breath here? Let's say the hardest possible words on the planet. Ready? I was wrong. I did not self, I did not self combust or whatever, spontaneously combust. I'm still here. Being human means that there are going to be moments when you're wrong. Those moments don't devalue your humanity. They don't make you unworthy. They reveal that you're on a journey. And when guilt and shame are guiding this whole idea of admitting mistakes, then what guilt and shame will convince you to do is to hide because vulnerability is dangerous. And you hide and pretend that you're doing all the work. I think good spirituality calls us away from pretending and into the actual work of becoming. And part of becoming is being able to say, look, I'm, I'm a flawed human being. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to get it wrong. And the process of healing that often begins with an acknowledgement of it. Yeah, I, made, I, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. When guilt and shame are off the table, you have a safety, a, a safety to learn and to grow and to transform. And that's good, good, good news. This is where the word repent comes in. How many of you, when you hear the word repent, you just think that's really gross? Anybody? Because the most, mostly when you hear it, it's when somebody's yelling at you or they have a sign and they're marching and you can tell like they set up all night making the sign, but it's still awful. Like they have no artistic ability and they're marching around with this sign that says repent. It's probably got the word you or your spelled wrong on it. And they're just marching around with their sign that says repent. And that word takes on all of that negative connotation. But here's the thing. The word repent doesn't contain any amount, any connotation in the original languages of the Bible. It contains no connotation of shame. No connotation of guilt it doesn't carry around this idea of beating yourself up. Like if you repent, I always, growing up, I always thought if you repent, you have to feel awful about yourself. Just terrible. You have to think you're the worst. When actually in the Bible to repent in Hebrew, it just means to return. In the New Testament language, Greek, it just means to change your mind, which is sort of about like returning, right? You, you change your mind. Oh, this is how I thought. This is the direction I was headed, but gosh, I have learned that this wasn't the right direction and that I need to turn around and go back because there's another direction that would lead to flourishing, that would lead to life, that would lead to goodness and joy, and I want to be on that path. In some ways, repentance is a part of our everyday life, whether we acknowledge it or not. We've just created it within this religious context where we think we're supposed to feel awful about ourselves. We're supposed to think there's nothing good in us, that there's nothing worthy in us, that there's nothing lovely in us. When actually repentant, repenting is going, I mean, how many of you uh, ever, you're going the wrong, you realize you missed your exit and you turn around and go the other way? Yeah, happens to all of us. Does anybody ever do this? Where you're like, you are the worst driver. You are the, you're terrible. You should just park your car and never leave home again. It's a little much, right? You missed a turn. It's cool. Just turn around. 
what repentance is. You missed a turn. It's cool. Just turn around. Turn around. Do a little self-examination. Do a little acknowledgement that, hey, the way I'm going isn't the right way for me. The way I'm going isn't the way that leads to healing and wholeness and flourishing. And it's actually harming the people around me. So I'm just going to just going to pull a Yui and turn around and I'm going to go back the other way, right? It's the prodigal son coming to his senses, coming to himself and going, wow, this is not where I want to be. I'm going to turn around and go home. And when the prodigal son gets home, there's this speech he's prepared and the father is sort of like, speech. I don't want any speech. You have, your identity has not changed an ounce since you left. That was all in your brain, in your experience. It was all within your fear and all in your facade. You have, you have been loved and beloved the entire time. So welcome home. Here's a robe. Here's a ring. Got a DJ on retainer. Let's party. Because you should always have a DJ on retainer. Some people keep lawyers on retainer. No. That's expecting things to go wrong. Keep a DJ on retainer. You're putting that business out in the universe. Like, this is going to go so well that I'm going to keep a DJ on standby at all times. Right, this, this, this idea of repentance. There's this, listen to how Jesus frames it in Mark chapter 1. Um, John, who, uh, the Baptist, who has been sort of the active prophet, gets thrown in jail. And this is a moment for Jesus of understanding that he and John, while their messages may be a little different at times, that he and John had a similar vision that the kingdom of God needed to come into the world and transform it. And when John goes to prison, I think Jesus is met with a couple things. One is like, oh, this is... This, this could happen to me too. But also, John's voice is being silenced. We need somebody with a message. And so Jesus launches into the world in Mark 1.14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news, gospel, saying, now is the time, here comes God's kingdom, change your hearts and lives, repent, and, believe, and trust the good news. Right? The way this translation, the CB, it's change your hearts and lives. It's, it's almost like this. Here's some really great news. Adjust your life accordingly. Here's some really great news. Trust it. Trust that it's really, really, really good news and that there are no strings attached and that there, aren't, there, there, there is no bait and switch coming, that this is the good news. God's kingdom is here and it's open and accessible to every human being. But the only way you can begin to see it is when you begin to change the way you think. The only way you can begin to see God's kingdom is when you begin to see that, that those who have been marginalized, outcast, the least of these, are actually at the center of God's work in the world. It's only when you begin to realize that those you've been excluding, they're actually where you'll find God. So you have to go back to them, do a little repenting, and then you'll begin to see the kingdom at work. Repentance is, is about, often about admitting mistakes. Yeah, I went the wrong way there. But I, I, I learned did a little self-examination, and now we're headed on the, back, the path back home. And then finally, I think part of sorry is about processing our failures. How many of you love to fail? You just, you just like throw the fight all the time because failure is the best. No, nobody likes to fail. Um, and, and when you fail, speaking from personal experience, there's a little bit of humiliation, there's a little bit of embarrassment. Um, it's not the thing we want to go announcing to the world, right? Like you don't go, like you graduate and then you go out and you have dinner and you're like, what are you celebrating? I graduated. Yeah, that's great. 4.0. It's awesome. Like when I remember when I, when I transferred colleges, so when I started college, I went to this one school and I left with a 3.8. My first semester at the next school, I ended up with a 1.2. Things happened. (laughs) I had a great time. 
did not go to class often. But I, I, like there was this, when I, when I got those grades at the end of the semester, I didn't go out to like O'Charlie's and say, bring out some extra rolls because I failed. <laughs> right? Failure is the thing we want to keep hidden. It's the thing that we want, right? It's, it's, it's the humans in the garden realizing we ate from the wrong tree and now we have to cover up and hide ourselves from God because God's showing up anyway. By the way, the idea that sin separates you from God and keeps God away from you is completely debunked in the third chapter of the Bible because God shows up for the walk anyway. God meets the human beings in their fear, in their anxiety. God meets the human beings in their covering up and hiding, and God calls them out and begins the process of helping them heal. We don't advertise our failures, but failure can be generative. I bet if you go read any biography of anybody who's done anything, you'll find out that way before they were known for doing a thing really well, that there were lots and lots of failures that preceded whatever success they've had. That before it was going really well, it wasn't going well at all. That before things turned around, that they were maybe contemplating like, I just don't know, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I should just go do something else with my life. I'm just tired of failing. I'm tired of rejection. Every author I've talked to who's ever written a book is like, yeah, I got rejected 422 times. And, and that, I, that sense of failure, when it is internalized, when you go from that failed to I'm a failure, it is when it becomes really, really, really dangerous for human beings. Because then we'll start taking that. That is our identity. I'm a failure. Everything I touch falls apart. There's nothing good that I put out into the world. When in reality, failure is a natural part of the human process, the human experience. In the Bible, the way the, the scriptures would frame it is, is that this idea that, that death leads to life. When you think about the, the Jesus story, what was so confusing for Jesus' early followers in the beginning was, our guy failed. You, you, you realize before the Easter moment, before there were people following Jesus, claiming he was still with them, that Jesus' crucifixion was not a celebratory moment. Right? That somebody wasn't like, hey, get your crucifix now. Be an early adopter. I mean, this is, this is failure. This is the vision, the mission, the kingdom. Failure. And yet, there's this great line in John 12 where Jesus says, unless some grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, they'll never actually produce Life. Failure is generative. Failure is transformative. One of my favorite stories in the whole New Testament, one of my favorite Easter accounts, Jesus' disciples, there's this little ending on the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 21 that wasn't there originally, and they don't know where it was, but, but somebody knew of it and found it and said, you know, some, like, this is a great story. We shouldn't lose this, so we're just going to stitch it on to the end of the Gospel of John. Um, and it's a story that takes place... It, it, Seems like sometime after Jesus' death, the disciples go back home and they're back to work as fishermen. They're doing that work again, which is also, can you imagine if you're Simon Peter and those guys who, um, they, like, they quit their jobs. They told their dad, like, leaving the family business, gonna follow Jesus, changing the world. And they leave their nets. And can you imagine that journey back home? Calling old man Zebedee, Zeb. Imagine dad, um, you know that thing we were going to do, Jesus changed the world, didn't pan out. 
So can I have my old job back? Can I get back in on the family business? And so they're doing this and they're fishing. And this particular morning, they've fished all night and they've caught nothing. So not only do they have to crawl back for their jobs, they're really bad at it. I mean, they're using nets. It's a little easier. And they look over on the beach and there's Jesus. they don't know it's Jesus. They see somebody and there's, he's, he's cooking fish and he's sort of poking fun at them. Like, y'all got any fish? No, no fish. And he's, you know, doing his fish on the coals and they realize it's Jesus. And so they go over to him. And you have to understand that this Simon Peter in this moment has to be feeling about as worse as a human being can feel because he is one of, he's one of Jesus' right-hand people. And Jesus is telling them, this is how this might go. I may go, I'm, I'm, looks like I'm gonna get executed by the empire. And Simon Peter's like, I'll go with you and I'll even die with you if I have to. And Jesus is like, you're not, that's actually not what you're gonna do, believe it or not. Um, you're gonna deny that you even knew me and not just once. You're gonna, you're gonna do it like three times. And so guess what Simon Peter does? He denies ever knowing Jesus. And he's in this moment where he's confronted with the risen Christ on the beach making some fish, and he's standing there. What are you feeling if you're Simon Peter in this moment? You feeling any shame? You feeling any embarrassment? You feeling any failure? Not, not only now, and so this is like in this story, the first time they've seen Jesus. Don't know how long it's been, but he's there on the beach making some fish, and you're standing there knowing that you, you talked a big game and you just didn't even show up. And now... The guy you abandoned is back from the dead. Not a good sign for you. Like, he came back just to settle the score. And there's this, they eat breakfast and nobody's really talking much, but then there's this encounter between Jesus and Peter afterward where he says, hey, do you, you love me? Like, yeah. And he actually begins with, do you love me more than these? And people are like, what are these? And I tend to think it's fish, right? Do you love me more than going back to what's safe? You'll be more than going back to your old life. And they have this conversation three times, Jesus asked the question. And then by the end, Jesus is essentially saying to Peter, well, look, here's the thing. This is my translation. You can sit around and process this failure for the rest of your life. Or you can realize that this fail failure could be the thing that launches you into the work you've been given to do in the world. And it seems like Peter chose the I'm going to let this failure launch me back into what I can do in the world. But the fear of failure is often bigger than the experience of failure. And yet when we fail, we are met with the goodness of this Jesus who says, okay, okay, yeah, you failed. No big deal. Like, you're going to let that stop you from being who you were meant to be in the world? You failed. You're going to let that stop you from pursuing human flourishing? You failed. Are you going to stop that, let that stop you from ever stepping into all of the goodness and beauty you could bring into the world? See, sorry is actually only the hardest word when we think that saying sorry and being sorry somehow means that we are admitting that we are subhuman and that we're terrible and not very good. But what if sorry wasn't that? What if sorry was a way of saying, hey, I'm in process and good news. I learned from this one. Not going to do this again. Probably going to do something else. Not going to do this. And I think there's something powerful about the word sorry and the, the, the word sorry meant that not only for the person who's been wronged to hear an actual apology that's meant, 
There's also something about the person giving me I'm sorry, who is met with grace and generosity and begins to realize, oh, this mistake does not define me. It does not reduce my value. It is actually a stepping stone onto a better version of me. So I think part of the season of complexity is being able to embrace the word sorry, not as a self-defeating, self-hating experience, but as a way of acknowledging that we are on a journey and we are in process. How we treat other people matters and how we treat ourselves matters too.